You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. For if we did, the operation is to be repeated till the trajectory is exactly enough determined. Ah, okay, well, that's it. 572 pages and my book is not only finally complete, but it is the final book on physics. This should knock Will Shakespeare off the bestseller list. In 1687, Isaac Newton completed his epic treatise known as the Principia, describing the laws of mechanics, how everything from planets to pendulums moved. For centuries, most thinkers figured this was the last word on that great underpinning of science, physics. We lived in a clockwork universe in which time and space were absolute and unchanging. Time marched forward relentlessly. Space existed in three dimensions and was the stage setting for all existence. It was elegant. It was simple. It was seemingly perfectly accurate. It was also wrong. Space, time, mass, size, these are not absolute, and that's contrary to intuition of everyone's, perhaps, but that of Albert Einstein. His equations describe time and space as relative, as changeable as the weather, and also that gravity was not some sort of mysterious force, as Newton proposed, but the result of the bending of space-time. Einstein's ideas sparked a physics revolution. This year, we celebrate the 100th anniversary of his general theory of relativity. His radical idea in 1915 changed how we see the world. It showed that Newton's physics were good, but not perfect, and that our concepts of space, time, gravity, how the universe works, were not quite correct. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode... The theory of relativity was one of the most profound insights in physics. But is it the last word? Scientists say that the strange behavior of gravity at the edge of black holes might possibly prove Einstein's idea wrong at some level. But meanwhile, relativity is working for you every day. For example, whenever you switch on your GPS, we'll look at those ideas, plus how the notion that a cat could be both dead and not dead exposed another scientific conundrum during Einstein's time. Welcome to It's All Relative. What does it mean to say that time and space are relative? This was first explored in Einstein's special theory of relativity, which he published in 1905. But his general theory, which followed 10 years later, extended it. Time is not absolute. Now try saying that to your boss when you're late. It might not get you off the hook, but you'd be right. For example, you tell your wife you're going on a short drive to pick up some groceries, and you'll be back in 15 minutes. Now, Time is elastic when you're in motion, so even though your super-accurate watch says you took exactly 15 minutes for the errand, your wife's super-accurate watch says you took longer than that. Not, Not very much, in the range of maybe a nanosecond or so. But the point is not that the difference is small, but the fact that there is a difference. And if you had a very much faster car, the difference could be greater. Einstein showed us that time slows down for objects that are in motion, whether they be cars, spacecraft, or anything else that moves. It's bizarre stuff, and Einstein laid it all out in his theory of special relativity. But that theory was incomplete. It didn't account for gravity, the so-called force acting on objects as described by Newton. 
Einstein didn't see gravity as a force, but as a property of space and time itself. And a hundred years ago, he proved it with mathematics in his second theory called the general theory of relativity. Let's get the basics from astronomer Jeff Bennett, author of What is Relativity? What you can say about Einstein's theory of relativity, meaning both the special and the general theories, is that they provide our modern understanding of space, time, and gravity. So relativity really changed our view of everything in the universe and how we think about it. Well, can you give me an example of how Einstein's work showed that our intuitive feel for how things work was wrong? Well, our intuitive feel is that space and time are both independent and absolute, so that everyone would always measure space and time the same way. But when we look at motion, depending on how you're looking at it, motion might look different to one observer from another. For example, if someone's on a treadmill, they'll say they're going six miles an hour, but somebody watching them on the treadmill will say, no, you're not going anywhere. You're still in the same place in the room. So we think of speed as relative, time and space as absolute. And what Einstein really told us, it's kind of the other way around. The speed of light is absolute. Everyone always measures it the same, no matter how they're moving. And the consequences of that turn out to be that space and time become relative for different observers. Well, I understand, Jeff, that uh, motion may seem relative if I'm sitting on a train. From my point of view, I'm just sitting on the train eating my lunch. I'm not going anywhere. From anybody standing alongside the track, obviously, I am going somewhere. But Einstein took this a little bit farther. I mean, he said it wasn't quite that simple, right? Well, that's right. And because at our ordinary speeds in everyday life, the effects are not noticeable because they only become really noticeable when you get close to the speed of light. But he showed that the speed of light is the same for everyone. And this is actually a really strange idea. If you think about looking through a telescope, these wonderful pictures you may have seen from the Hubble Space Telescope, we see stars and galaxies at all different distances. And They're moving relative to us at all different speeds, some of them at very, very high speeds moving away from us with the expansion of the universe, and yet the light from every single one of them is entering our telescope at exactly the same speed of light. It's counterintuitive, but it's been experimentally confirmed, and it's as a result of that that we find that when you're on your train ride, you'll say how far you went and how long it took you to make the trip, and if we measured precisely enough, someone on the ground would give different answers. Well, general relativity was uh, derived by Einstein after special relativity. That was published in 1905, general relativity 10 years later. And part of the problem was that uh, gravity didn't fit into special relativity. Why didn't it fit? Well, historically, Einstein was approaching relativity from his own attempts to understand the universe, thinking about these paradoxes that he encountered when he thought about what would it be like to ride on a beam of light. But physicists were also interested in this topic, and Einstein learned the physics as he got older, and they were interested because there were some known problems in physics dealing with the laws of electricity and magnetism that needed to be solved. When Einstein got special relativity in 1905, he solved those known problems with the laws of electricity and magnetism. So from other physicists' point of view, the problems were done. Einstein had solved them. But from his own point of view, he realized there were still some paradoxes when he thought about writing on the beam of light. And in order to solve those, he needed to bring gravity into the theory. And the reason special relativity is called special, incidentally, is because it refers to the special case in which we ignore gravity. General relativity brings gravity in. So general relativity came along about 10 years later, and it did include gravity, and it produced some very interesting concepts, including those about gravity itself. It said that gravity was not just simply a force, whatever that is. It said it had something to do with space-time. That's right. You know, if you look back at the way gravity works, if you think about our old ideas of gravity, which come from Isaac Newton and his law of universal gravitation, it says, for example, that the Earth orbits the sun because of this gravitational force acting between them. But if you think about it, you know, 
the sun is 150 million kilometers from Earth, neither the sun nor the Earth have any ears, eyes, nose, touch, or any other senses. So how do they even know each other are there so that they can respond to gravity? It's as though gravity is this magical force that comes out of nothing. And Newton himself recognized that this was a very strange thing. He, In fact, he called his own law of gravity absurd, even though he knew that it worked really well. And what Einstein did with general relativity was he showed you don't need any magical force. It's the structure of the universe itself, the structure of space-time, that causes objects to orbit under gravity. The usual analogy is a kind of uh, model in which if you have some mass somewhere, like, like the sun, for example, that it's distorting space in such a way that things have to sort of roll around it the way, you know, you would put a, I don't know, a bowling ball on a rubber sheet. And if you threw marbles at it, they would run around, you know, the edges of that, that sunken sheet. Is that the way to think of uh, general relativity's predictions? Well, a good way to think about it is go back to when you were in school and you used to work in math on graph paper. And on graph paper, you had the X and the Y axes. And the paper is a fabric, but what we're, we're not really interested in the paper itself. We're interested in that coordinate system, the X and the Y axes. And if I lay the paper flat on my table, then it's flat. If I pick up the paper and roll it somehow, then it's not flat anymore. Now I've curved my space, my two-dimensional X and Y axes. And we're talking about the same idea for three-dimensional space and four-dimensional space-time. It's just that we can't draw them. For three-dimensional space, you have to draw your Z-axis going up and down through the paper with the X and Y on it. And for four-dimensional space-time, well, we don't even have a visual way of placing that fourth time axis because we live as three-dimensional beings. But mathematically, it's very easy to work with, you just add another letter, X, Y, Z, and T. And we're talking about the idea that this four-dimensional space-time is curved, just like curving a sheet of graph paper. And the only way to know that it's curved is to, you know, I don't know, measure distances from one place to another or, or whether beams of light go in straight lines, right? Measuring the beams of light is the real key because if they have curved, you know since light ordinarily travels in a straight line, if they didn't go in a straight line, something must have caused those paths to bend, and that must be the shape of the universe itself that did that. So the theory of general relativity described the interaction of gravity and space and time. But, you know, theories uh, look good on blackboards. Maybe you can impress students with them. But if they don't predict something that you can test with an experiment, well, I mean, they're just theories. What, what sort of... Uh, predictions did general relativity make? Actually, the first real clear test of general relativity came from something that had already been observed before Einstein started working on the theory, and that was the orbit of Mercury. It was already known in the early 1900s that Mercury was not following quite exactly the orbit predicted by Newton's law of gravity. It was really, really close, but not exact. And when Einstein started to work out his equations of general relativity, he was overjoyed when he discovered that they gave him an exact measure match to the observations of Mercury. So that was the first solid prediction that was held up and showed that general relativity really was on the right track. The next and perhaps most famous prediction was that because it says that the universe is curved in four dimensions, it means that light is going in a straight line. Well, a straight line in a curved space is going to curve. So he said that light should curve when it goes past a massive object like the sun. And in 1919, there was a total solar eclipse. Astronomers went out to measure the positions of the stars, and they found, sure enough, the light from stars that appear close to the sun during the solar eclipse was in the wrong place because it was being bent by the gravity of the sun. And that, in fact, is when Einstein became famous in a household name because newspapers all over the world reported that tremendous success of general relativity. What was the public's reaction to this? Did they care or was this all just a bit esoteric? Well, I think the public did care because it is such an exciting idea. We Here we have this new theory that shows that everything we used to think about space-time and gravity is uh, a little different from the way reality is. It's 
in some ways, it's almost equivalent to learning that Earth is not the center of the universe. It instead goes around the sun. Only this time we're learning space and time are not absolute. They are relative based on the absoluteness of the speed of light. Okay, Jeff, well, we may have some questions for you later in the show. Are you prepared to hang on there for a while? Absolutely. We've heard the basics of general relativity. And, you know, it's not just a theoretical, intellectual exercise. It has real practical applications. Coming up, one of those applications, how relativity keeps you from getting lost. Also, a cat, some radioactive material, and a bottle of poison go into a box. What happens next is not a joke, but one of the most famous paradoxes of all time. Like they said at your family reunion, it's all relative on Big Picture Science. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. You may get the gist of general relativity now, thanks to Jeff Bennett's explanation, but still find yourself thinking, it's all theoretical. What practical value does general relativity have in your life? Well, you benefit from Einstein's work whenever you get in your car and hear this voice. Turn left at the next street. Yes, those precise directions brought to you by the less than dulcet tones of your GPS bot allow you to make your way across the city without missing a turn. Even though GPS was developed 80 years after Einstein published his paper on general relativity, the Department of Defense engineers who first put GPS in motion, as it were, drew on the German scientists' equations to make it work. Your GPS device is the last link in a highly coordinated constellation of satellites and terrestrial receivers. You need four satellites to determine your position, latitude, longitude, and altitude. And in fact, all that your GPS receiver is really doing is figuring out your position on the basis of the satellite's position. For example, how far away from you is each of those four satellites? Well, clocks on board the satellites tell you by indicating how long it takes for a satellite signal to reach you. Yes, but hold on. Time is relative. Remember, cue the equations of relativity. Boston Globe technology reporter Hiawatha Bray, author of You Are Here, says you wouldn't know where you were, as far as GPS goes, if it weren't for Einstein. Hiawatha, how is it that GPS depends on general relativity? In order to appreciate that, you have to understand what is really going on with the GPS satellite. What each of those satellites is doing is sending a signal to, well, whoever on the ground is receiving it or the machine that's receiving it. And that signal contains, among other things, the exact time, I mean down to the nanosecond, as measured by an atomic clock on board the satellite. Now, you need to get a signal from four satellites. There are, what, about 24 in orbit. Actually, it's more than that because nowadays most devices don't just use GPS. They also use the Russian version known as GLONASS. And if you have a newer smartphone, your phone is actually picking up the American GPS signals and the Russian signals. So you're getting signals often from a couple of dozen satellites at once. Let's stick with the American signals for now before we translate this into Russian. So on those satellites that are going around the Earth are atomic clocks. And these are some of the most precise clocks that we've invented, right? Absolutely. They were invented as a way of coming up with a true, absolute way of measuring time. And that is based on the rate at which certain molecules or certain atoms vibrate. For example, the cesium atom, which everywhere in the universe is going to vibrate at exactly the same rate, so many billion cycles per second. And that gives you an absolute measurement of time. And atomic clocks are based on that so that they can be insanely precise. Okay, so the tick-tick, although it doesn't really make a tick, is the vibration of the cesium atom, which is a reliable 
vibration, and it is from that that the atomic clocks are calibrated. That's exactly right. But there's something going on here that changes the game, and Einstein saw it coming. It turns out that as an object or a clock, for example, on a moving object, say a ship or an airplane, is actually going to tick a little bit slower than something that's stationary. As your clock is moving, time for everything on board that airplane or whatever moving uh, vehicle it is, time is going to be moving somewhat slower than it would for a stationary object. Even the atomic clocks on these satellites are moving slightly slower than you in your car driving around on Earth. That's right. Now, of course, for any normal human activity here on Earth, the difference is just so incredibly tiny that it it just wouldn't appear to matter. But once you start getting up to the speeds at which satellites are orbiting the Earth, they're moving at like, what, around 18,000 miles an hour, suddenly that difference becomes enough to actually be measurable. And the clocks on board these satellites are actually moving a tiny bit slower, something like seven microseconds a day slower because they're moving so rapidly around the Earth. It actually makes the time slow down. But it gets even stranger, because there's an effect in the opposite direction from having the satellites out in orbit. The farther they are from the center of the Earth's mass, and the Earth, of course, is exerting gravity on these satellites, uh, gravitational attraction, but the farther they move from the source of that gravitational attraction, the faster time moves on board the satellite. So as it moves farther away from the Earth, the clock starts moving faster. And both of these things were predicted by Einstein. So you've got the slowdown caused by the clock moving, and you've got the speed up caused by the clock being further away from the Earth and uh, under less influence from its gravity. And you had to calculate a sort of fudge factor for the clocks on board a, a, a space-based receiver in order to make allowances for that. Because if you didn't, the uh, clocks would be off, it turned out, by about 38 microseconds every day. And that sounds like nothing. But to get the exact location from a GPS receiver, and you have to receive it from four different satellites at the same time, you have to be accurate to within nanoseconds, or the the navigational fix will be way off at first by feet, and eventually it would be off by miles. That fudge factor, (laughs) you're referring to Einstein's theories of relativity, and these are actual equations that scientists then applied to the GPS system they were building so that it could be precise. Absolutely. They had to change. They adjust the frequency that they receive from the atomic clock so it actually netted out to a speeding up of the clocks by about 38 microseconds a day. And that has to be built into the signal we receive from every GPS satellite. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to rely on the accuracy of the fixes they give us. Hiawatha, are you a devoted GPS user? Or in other words, when's the last time you used a paper map to get anywhere? Does anybody still use paper maps? I love paper maps, but I I really don't see the point. Uh, Those are two different questions, you understand, because there's GPS, there's also maps. And nowadays, even if you didn't use GPS, you can have the map on your phone. So I don't know why anybody would use a paper map anyway. (laughs) Well, if time moves more slowly in space, in some occasions, and more quickly in other occasions, if I were to move through space, could I adjust the rate at which I age? Well, I guess so. I mean, I take it you've seen Interstellar, the movie, Did you see that? Yes, I did see that. There you go. Then you know what we're talking about here, this whole idea that every hour that they're out in space, his child is getting like a year older and he wants to make it back to Earth before she becomes an old lady and dies. I mean, it's a really wild, far-fetched thing, but I love that movie, partly because they were dealing with exactly one of the most creepy and fascinating implications of what Einstein was telling us, because strange as that movie was, that was a pretty accurate summation of one of the implications of space travel. Things could get very strange. Well, I know as a reporter, time is of the essence to you, so thank you for taking some of it. Thanks, Hiawatha, for talking about time and space with us. Thank you for having me. Hiawatha Bray is a technology reporter at the Boston Globe and author of You Are Here, From the Compass to GPS, The History and Future of How We Find Ourselves. Special relativity and general relativity made Albert Einstein the poster boy for physics after about 1920. 
But while Einstein was basking in the glory of his rewriting of the equations of space, time, and gravity, there was another revolution unfolding in physics. It described how things behave on a very small scale, the scale of atoms and the particles that make up atoms, quantum mechanics. Now, quantum mechanics didn't bear directly on Einstein's relativity theories, but they did affect the great physicist's philosophy because it turns out that the behavior of particles on a small scale is not predictable. And that disturbed Einstein, who thought that physics must be deterministic. That harkens back to Newton. If you know where Venus is tonight, you can use Newton's laws, or Einstein's laws for that matter, to know where the planet will be tomorrow to any degree of accuracy that you desire. But that isn't true for quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is weird. Let's just establish that right off the bat. In fact, it calls for some spooky music at a distance. The domain of quantum mechanics is the very small, and very strange things happen on the quantum scale. Particles, like electrons, for example, behave like particles, but also like waves. And they can affect each other over vast distances, too, what's known as quantum entanglement. And they do so instantaneously. I mean, this is trippy stuff. It's weird enough that even the great physicists were amazed. Niels Bohr, who actually won a Nobel Prize for his contributions to quantum theory, said, if quantum mechanics hasn't profoundly shocked you, you haven't understood it yet. Well, the Austrian physicist Erwin Schrödinger did understand it, and he had a problem with it. This is another guy who won a Nobel Prize for his contributions to the field, but Schrödinger was bothered that quantum physics couldn't easily be applied to the ordinary world. So he corresponded with his friend Al Einstein about this fact, and he illustrated his concerns with a thought experiment. This is a thought experiment designed to prove the absurdity of quantum physics. And since then, Schrodinger's cat has become an iconic example, demonstrating the elusive nature of reality. The idea of uncertainty about things has been encapsulated by Schrodinger's cat. And the idea that two things, complete opposites, can be true at once is really brilliantly expressed by this Schrodinger's cat experiment. And it's relatively straightforward, although physicist Paul Halperin doesn't recommend that you actually try this at home. And it involves a cat, a radioactive sample, a Geiger counter, and a flask of poison being enclosed in a box. Okay, so in that box is your adored pet, which was healthy and happy up to this point in its life. You've also got in there some radioactive material, maybe an old watch with a radium dial, a Geiger counter to measure the level of radioactivity, and straight out of a Victorian thriller, a flask of poison. Let's just say that you'd have trouble getting this box past the TSA. Now, what comes next is the deep thought part of the thought experiment. You've got that radioactive material in your box. Now, radioactive decay is a random process. There's a 50-50 chance that the radioactive sample will decay and produce a particle in some specified amount of time, let's say a minute. If it does, it sets off a chain reaction. If the sample decays, the Geiger counter will be set off and that will open up the flask and release the poison. Or maybe not. We don't know that that is going to happen. It's uncertain whether the radioactive material is decayed. It may have, it may not have. It all depends on the state of a particular subatomic particle, a particle that exists in a state known as a superposition, two states at the same time. But the idea is that the radioactive sample is in a mixed state or superposition of two possibilities, decayed and not decayed. And because of that, until you observe the cat, the cat is said to be in a mixed state of living and dead. In other words, a zombie cat. And so it may be the night of the living zombie cat until you do one simple thing, open the box. See, until you open up the box and make an observation, both realities can be true. The radioactive material has and has not decayed. The cat is dead and not dead. When you crack open the box and you observe what happened, said Schrodinger, only then is the quantum state said to have collapsed into one of two possibilities. You either get a feline happy to be freed from confinement or an ex-feline. In other words, reality, at least at very small scales, doesn't exist until you look at it. 
Schrodinger recognized that the idea that a cat is both dead and alive is an absurd one, and he used this experiment to illustrate how quantum physics is important only to the world of particles, not to the ordinary world. So this bizarre little thought experiment suggests that nature, on the small scale, is kind of indecisive. It doesn't know what it wants to do, because at these very small scales, particles can be both here and there, two things at once. And so quantum physics isn't deterministic, and that's what bothered both Schrodinger and Einstein. And is what prompted Einstein to say that God does not play dice with the universe. Paul Halpern's book is Einstein's Dice and Schrodinger's Cat, how two great minds battled quantum randomness to create a unified theory of physics. Well, Einstein gave an interview to the New York Times talking about his idea of God, and he emphasized that it was the God of Spinoza. Well, if you look at the philosophy of Spinoza, Spinoza equated God with nature, in fact, the perfection of nature. And that's what Einstein meant. He meant by God the idea that nature must be at its essence, perfect, Both of these people were engaged in the early part of the 20th century to try and bring these ideas together in some sort of, I don't know, grand theory, if not a grand theory of everything, at least a grand theory of most things. What was the intention? Is this just an aesthetic uh, endeavor that they just felt that we need a, a nicer theory because it looks better on paper? Were they trying to explain things that people didn't understand? What was it they were really trying to do? Well, Einstein completed his masterpiece general relativity a hundred years ago. And the ink was barely dry on his masterpiece that he began to see its flaws. So it would be almost as if da Vinci saw the Mona Lisa and said, hey, wait a minute, this is a beautiful painting, but I want to add something to it. What what about Schrodinger? I mean, how did he get into this? Because he was one of the pioneers, if you will, of quantum mechanics. He was pointing out that at least at the atomic level or that, that sort of level, particles were not little billiard balls. Electrons were not little billiard balls. They were these fuzzy things. What was he trying to do? Was he trying to do the same thing Einstein was? Schrodinger wasn't quite as ambitious in the beginning. Schrodinger liked his equation. He won the Nobel Prize for the Schrodinger equation. And he didn't like the probabilistic interpretation, but he felt sometimes that he could live with it. But then as he developed in his career, he began to be more ambitious. And then what happened was he ended up becoming exiled during World War II in Ireland. And when he was in exile, he wanted to work with Einstein And the two of them began a correspondence in the early 1940s and ended up working together, not in person, but collaborating over a long distance on unified theories. And Schrodinger's ideas were very similar to Einstein's during the early 1940s. So they were working toward a similar goal. Were they friendly competitors then? I mean, did they help one another? Well, until 1947, until the fateful day when Schrodinger declared success to the Royal Irish Academy, they were very, very good friends. Einstein wrote to Schrodinger in a letter, you are my nearest brother. Einstein was very, very happy that Schrodinger would write to him, discuss unified field theories, because at the time, Einstein was pretty isolated because the rest of the physics community had moved on to things like nuclear physics, particle physics, the discovery of things like the pi meson and so forth. And Einstein was not really interested in that. He still tried to pursue a unified theory uniting gravity and electromagnetism. And because he had ignored quantum probability, he ignored new developments in nuclear physics and particle physics, other physicists looked at him like he was a relic. When he was working at the Institute for Advanced Study, Oppenheimer, during a time period, was the director of the Institute. And Oppenheimer used to steer young people away from Einstein and say, do not have your mind polluted by Einstein's ideas because they're wrong. These two famous physicists had quite different personalities, right, Paul, especially when it came to being in the public eye. Schrodinger actually kind of collected women rather openly, (laughs) didn't he? I mean, and Einstein had uh, secret lovers as well. Well, yeah, that was a difference because Einstein was a bit embarrassed about the fact that his marriages didn't really work out very well. First, his first marriage ended in divorce. His second marriage was to his cousin. And very shortly, he realized that that was not exactly 
everything he wanted. So he began to see some young women in Berlin. And it was a time of great openness in especially late 1920s Berlin. So it wasn't really so much frowned upon to have you know, a girlfriend along with one's wife. Schroeninger was a lot wilder in some ways. He would have, at some points in his life, he would have his wife. He had a woman who was effectively a second wife who was the mother of his daughter. And then he would have a girlfriend on the side. Yeah, they, they, it makes you wonder when they found time to do physics. Well, ironically, when Schrodinger developed his Nobel Prize winning work, he was in a hotel with one of his girlfriends. No, oh, so I obviously have that backward, actually. <laughs> the, the liaisons actually helped them do physics, at least in the case of Erwin Schrodinger. Yes, well, Herman Weil, who apparently was interested in Schrodinger's wife, said that Schrodinger did his best work, meaning the Schrodinger wave equation, during a late-life erotic interlude. <laughs> All right. Well, look, in the end, the quest of Einstein and Schrodinger for a grand unifying theory somehow to unite the forces of nature, to, to be able to you know, write on a, I don't know, a, a whiteboard or maybe even a postage stamp the equations that describe everything, that didn't work out, did it? No. Uh, the theory that Schrodinger talked about when he gave a speech to the Royal Irish Academy and was so proud of, he said, I beat Einstein to the work that was Einstein's goal for 30 years. Somehow, I came up with the equations that Einstein missed. He even talked about some kind of divine motivation that somehow he was taken to Ireland just to come up with these equations. And why did Einstein miss it? Why did he get it? He, in a way, became very arrogant about the fact that he came up with something that Einstein couldn't and bragged about it. But then he immediately became embarrassed because Einstein was put on the spot and that ruined their friendship for a few years. And then a few years later, some physicists proved that there were no solutions to Schrodinger's work or to Einstein's work at that time, unified field theory. There was, of course, no experimental evidence. So nothing really came of either of their unified field theories at the time. Paul Halpern, thanks so very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Seth. Paul Halpern may or may not be a physicist at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. You'll have to visit him to find out. His book is Einstein's Dice and Schrodinger's Cat, How Two Great Minds Battled Quantum Randomness to Create a Unified Theory of Physics. And we want to assure you that no cats, real or unreal, alive or dead, were harmed or unharmed in the production of this show. Coming up, two experiments in progress now that are putting Einstein's theory to the test. Like they said at the Genealogy Club, it's all relative on Big Picture Science. Einstein's theory of general relativity made a whole slew of predictions. One was the fact that space should be filled with things called gravity waves. Another is the existence of incredible concentrations of mass we call black holes. Both phenomena have been the focus of high-profile observational experiments. Let's take gravitational waves first. General relativity declared that massive objects curve space and time, but it also postulated that if objects move around, they cause ripples in that space-time, known as gravitational waves. Now, if they're small objects like people, the waves are produced, but they're too weak to be detectable. What you really need is a lot of mass in a very small space, such as a neutron star, and that's the collapsed corpse of a, of a dead star that's run out of fuel, the whole weight of a star in a ball that would fit in downtown New York. Now, when two neutron stars are orbiting really close to each other, you have two, two, two times the amount of gravitational pull. And the gravity waves produced by these dancing heavyweights may be directly detectable, although we still haven't done that. But the experiment LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, seeks to change that. The experiment is playing out in two, two, Two huge detectors in Louisiana and in Washington detecting the waves would be a confirmation of Einstein's theories, says theoretical physicist Beverly Berger from the International Society on General Relativity and Gravitation. The large picture is that physicists look for things that don't fit because that's where 
you find the better understanding of the universe. So the reason you keep testing general relativity and quantum mechanics is to find things that don't fit. Then that's a hint that there's something there that we don't understand. And it may just end up being mundane, like a bad experiment or something. But on the other hand, a lot of revolutions in thought came from trying to make something fit. Why people are searching for gravitational waves also is that it's a new way of looking at the universe because gravitational waves can go places electromagnetic waves can't go. You can't shield them. They, they go through everything. So you can, if you have two neutron stars going splat, you can't get to the core of that with electromagnetic waves because they get blocked just like you can't see through fog. And any time... You can measure something better, let's say 10 times better than was done before. You'll discover something. Well, I wonder if you would consider the experiment LIGO as an example of something that is advanced technology that is 10 times better than what we might have been able to do uh, 100 years ago. Now, this is an international <laughs> collaboration, yes. although it's based in the U.S., and the laboratories together are trying to detect gravitational waves, and this is in the news now because they really inaugurated. You know, right, and I was there. And you were there. Did they, <laughs> did they actually crack the side of either one no. of these with some champagne? No, they don't do that No, they, they had a party. <laughs> okay, they had a party. Tell us about LIGO and why this is a very exciting time for physicists and really for all of us who are interested in this question of gravitational waves. Well, LIGO as an instrument is what's called an interferometer. An interferometer is a way to make precision measurements because it transfers your what you're trying to measure to the scale of the wavelength of light, which is much, much smaller than our ordinary everyday scale. So in this case, they're trying to detect gravitational waves by looking at the influence of those waves on light. They're looking at the influence of the waves on mirrors at the ends of four-kilometer arms. You can actually see them from the air if you take a satellite view. They look like an L-shaped tube, and inside the tube is a vacuum. At the ends of the L are mirrors where the two bars of the L meet, and a laser light is shined in there, and the, at the corner of the L... It splits the light so that part goes down one arm, part goes down the other arm. And if a gravitational wave comes by, it takes either a little shorter time or a little longer time for the light to get back. And so when it comes back together, the wave crests don't line up perfectly. And the imperfection, if you have enough light, you can actually pick out a billionth or a trillionth of the light and measure the extremely tiny effect from two huge neutron stars orbiting together and colliding. Some how far away do you think those stars might be? Well, they could be maybe 150 million light years okay. away. So 150 million light years away, 150 million years old. And the gravitational waves coming from those colliding neutron stars might interrupt uh, this light bouncing around in one of these detectors. But there are two detectors. Why do you need two? Well, it turns out you have to try to distinguish a signal from all kinds of noise caused by the earth moving, people walking around, lightning storms, all kinds of things create noise. So if you think you have a signal... If you have more than one detector and they both see it, that's stronger evidence that it's a real signal than that it just happens to be some noise in the detector, which can look like a signal without being one. Is LIGO up and running now when they had the celebration? Was it to The start? day of the celebration, it was not running. They were f making it better. They're always making it better. I believe today it is running. But we don't know how likely it is to see something because there are so many uncertainties that go into trying to predict what you'll see. Finally, Beverly, it's the 100th anniversary of general relativity. How might we be celebrating the sesquicentennial in 50 years? Well, in 50 years, I hope we will 
have such good gravitational wave detectors that will have no trouble detecting any event throughout the universe. There'll be detectors not just on the ground, but in space where they can look at more massive objects coming together, emitting gravitational waves and forming black holes. Beverly Berger, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. This was fun. Beverly Berger is a theoretical physicist and is with the International Society on General Relativity and Gravitation. The detection of gravity waves may be a further validation of the theory that Einstein developed 100 years ago, but there's another cosmic phenomenon that could provide support for the theory, or possibly discredit it. The most extreme environment in the universe is a black hole. Einstein's theory of general relativity postulated that there could be these concentrations of mass so great that their gravitational pull would prevent even light from escaping. His work made black holes theoretically possible although Einstein didn't think they actually existed. Well, he was wrong about that. And now an ambitious observational experiment may provide a close look at the monster black hole in the center of our own Milky Way galaxy. The Event Horizon Telescope will use antennas all over the world in its effort to produce the first image, a radio picture, of this black hole. It should show the size of the area around the hole known as the Event Horizon. But what if the Event Horizon Telescope finds that the Event Horizon for this massive black hole is different from what general relativity predicts? Could a theory that revolutionized physics and withstood a century of empirical test be swallowed up and discredited by a cosmic light bender? Astronomer Jeff Bennett joins us again to say what the hunt for gravitational waves and the stalking of a black hole might mean for the future of Einstein's masterwork. Jeff, we've just heard theoretical physicist Beverly Berger say that LIGO might be right on the edge of detecting these gravity waves. And if it does, well, what will that say about general relativity? Would it be just another nail in the coffin there, or is this going to be significant in terms of uh, vindicating Al Einstein? It's uh, both significant and to be expected, if that makes sense. The uh, significant part of it is you always want to test your predictions. And Einstein said these gravitational waves should be out there and we would like to detect them directly. But it's expected in the sense that even though we have not yet detected them directly, we have very, very strong indirect evidence that they exist. And that comes from the fact that they carry energy away from the systems that are emitting them. And we have actually observed systems where we see the loss of energy, noticing the orbits of two stars moving closer together. And it is an exact match to the amount of energy that Einstein said should be emitted through gravitational waves. So it's pretty clear that gravitational waves are real, but you'd like to detect them directly, not just rely on this indirect evidence. Now, there might be the possibility of a challenge to general relativity. In particular, there's a worldwide radio telescope, and I think it's called the Event Horizon Telescope, but it's just a collection of antennas around the world that's trying to measure the size of the big black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Could that possibly undo general relativity? Well, you know, in science, it's always possible that a new result might change the way you look at something, but you can't undo past successes. General relativity has passed many, many tests, and you can't undo all of those tests. At the most, you might find that it doesn't meet this one test, which would cause you to modify the theory somewhat. But I'd be very surprised if that happens. The Event Horizon Telescope should be able to measure the size of that Event Horizon for the supermassive black hole in the center of the galaxy. I expect that it will come out just as relativity says it should. And the really interesting parts will be what it tells us about the way matter is in falling into that and all the exciting energetic things going on in the center of the galaxy that we don't yet understand. We should learn a lot more about those with this Event Horizon Telescope. I think the intention is, at least in the first instance, simply to measure the size of the black hole, not the black hole itself, but, you know, the so-called event horizon around it. In any case, something you can measure. 
and general relativity predicts something about the size, and, and that's what they're trying to verify, right? That's right. General relativity predicts a precise size for that event horizon based on the mass of the black hole. It's a four million solar mass black hole in the center of our galaxy. So we hope that the event horizon telescope will show us that the size is what relativity predicts. If it's not, then we would have to try to understand why not. Well, Einstein's legacy, it's been a century since general relativity. Experiments are still trying to test it this way and that. There have been many experiments. And so far, Al has always come out on top. He's always been a winner. This theory seems to be pretty darn good, even after a century. But what about a century from now? What's your feeling on this? You know, we know that general relativity has proven enormously successful. I'll be very surprised if the Event Horizon Telescope or anything else turns up any holes in it because it works so, so well. And it makes so much sense once you start to understand its basic ideas. But we also know that general relativity is not completely compatible with another theory we have known as the theory of quantum mechanics when you get down down to very, very tiny sizes. In other words, quantum mechanics is our very successful theory of the very small. General relativity is our very successful theory of the very big, but they don't quite meet in the middle the way you might expect them to. And therefore, we know there must be something else what Stephen Hawking calls a theory of everything, which is where that movie got its title, there must be this theory of everything out there that will bring quantum mechanics and general relativity together. And we can hope that a century from now, we will know that theory. Jeff Bennett, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Jeff Bennett is an astronomer in Boulder, Colorado, and the author of What is Relativity?, Well, what we've heard in the show is that 100 years after the theory was formulated, it's still going strong. Yes, there are some experiments trying to see whether it's going to hold up, but so far it has. What's next? Well, we need to unify relativity, which applies to big things, with quantum mechanics, which applies to small things, and come up with that theory of everything. Einstein couldn't find it. Schrodinger couldn't find it. Maybe the next generation of physicists will succeed. Thanks to the special and generalized talent that helped produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to It's All Relative. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you can find it in our archive on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you like to see those radio waves bend around nearby stars, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and uh, do you have a comment, a criticism, maybe a suggestion, throw in some faint praise? Email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Okay, a little experiment here. I've put into this box a chainsaw, a chicken, some pop rocks, a typewriter, and a few kazoos to produce quantum uncertainty. Although, I gotta know what's happening in there. I'm just gonna open up the box and peek in.